Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there, back here in the studio of Gangland Wire, this is going to be a short, down-and-dirty review of the life of Vito Genovese. Vito Genovese was an Italian-American mobster. Sound like I wrote that, didn't it? He was a prominent member of the mob during the mid-20th century. He was born in 1897 in Rizzoliano, Italy, and he immigrated to the United States in 1913. Started out his criminal career as a member of the Morello family in New York City. By the 1930s, he had risen to prominence as a top lieutenant of Lucky Luciano, who, as we all know, was one of the most influential mob bosses in the country of the century, really. Genovese rose because he helped Luciano kill a mustache peak named Joe Masseria. Luciano lured Joe Masseria to a restaurant. He went to the bathroom, just like in The Godfather, when Genovese, Albert Anastasia, Joe Adonis, and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel entered and shot him to death. The assassins ran out to a getaway car driven by none other than Ciro the Artichoke King, Terranova. I mean, you can't, I mean, you can't, these names are just too good. They're really great. Luciano then takes over Masseria's family and he makes Genovese one of his underlings, one of his capos, gives him a as a crew. During the war in the 1940s, Genovese flees to Italy trying to avoid a murder charge. And while he's over there, he becomes a, a believer, a fervent supporter of Mussolini and the fascist government. Uh, Frank Costello will take over the Luciano family during the war. Now, Frank Costello was known for even handedness and, and, you know, no drama, keep the murders down. Let's just make money. Genovese was the exact opposite. He was well known for his ruthlessness and for ordering the killing of anyone who opposed him or threatened his power. And he even used murder in his personal life. During the war, Genovese delegated the responsibility of watching over his wife to Stephen France. Upon his return, or shortly after, a few years after his return, his long-suffering wife filed for divorce on the grounds he was a professional criminal. Unheard of at the time. I'd like to see those divorce papers. Genovese ordered an underling named Joe Vellacci, of all people, to put France on the spot or set him up for murder. Vellacci complied. He helped murder France. He even used his nephew as one of the guys that, that strangled France, I believe. Next, Genovese will order the murder of a man so he can marry the guy's widow, who was also his cousin. I mean, this Genovese, he was he was one goofy dude. He was crazy, but he was immensely powerful, and he must have been really charismatic because he just kept going. So this is all during the 1950s. Genovese had bribed his way back into the United States, killed off some witnesses from his old murder charge, rejoins the Luciano family. Now, his lust for power has not ended yet. He has a consuming desire to be the boss of bosses. He ordered a hit on Luciano's friend and caretaker of the family, the Luciano family, Frank Costello. As we all know now, the hit was botched by Carmine the Chint Galante. But, you know, what's interesting is lots of times a guy botches a hit, you know, he gets hit himself. But Genovese must have seen something in the chin because he promoted him anyway. And he'll eventually become the boss of what will remain known to this day as a Genovese crime family. Genovese will continue his murderous climb to the top with the idea that he could someday be the boss of bosses. He sent the Gallo brothers to murder another rival and a Luciano underling named Albert Anastasia. The Mad Hatter, you know, the the leader of Murder Incorporated, one of the most feared mobsters of the 1940s and 50s. 
after that Anastasia murder, which we all know about, it brought a lot of attention because the newspaper reporters were able to gain access to the murder scene, which was in the bar- barbershop of the Park Central Hotel in downtown Manhattan. And, and all these gruesome photos of his body on the floor of the barbershop, plus just the idea that they caught him with the uh, hot towel over his face, over his eyes and everything, and and caught him that way just became, you know, a mafia iconic hit of of that time period. For some reason, Genovese became emboldened, and he requested a meeting of the National Mafia of all the mob leaders from all over the country to this upstate New York farm of Joe Barbara. Now, Joe Barbara, or Barbara, I'm never sure how you pronounce that, uh, was this local kind of mob boss up in upstate New York, was connected to Buffalo, I believe, had facilitated a lot of the bootlegging, a lot of the booze coming down out of Canada. Uh, He had a soda pop company up there. Genovese wanted this meeting so he could assert his dominance and his legitimacy to the entire country. And I suspect he thought this might be a pathway to become the boss of bosses once he has this. Now, we all know what happened to the Appalachian meeting, as it became called, because the closest town was Appalachian, New York, brought so much attention onto the mob that, you know, they had to lay low for a while and they arrested everybody and had these hearings and newspaper headlines. And it was like, you know, that was really what impelled Jagger Hoover and the FBI to go take a look at the mob as an organization up to this time. Only the Federal Bureau of Narcotics had looked at them because they were so involved in heroin trafficking and the FBN realized that there was more to this organization than just each individual drug trafficking organization with this network set up from Turkey to Sicily to France, maybe to uh, one of those islands in the other islands in the Mediterranean, uh, Corsica, because there's Corsican mafia guys, and and into the United States through Cuba at 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 the time. So Genovese was arrested many times throughout his career, and including for drug trafficking and other murders. But his final conviction was kind of interesting because it's reported in modern times that Lucky Luciano was tired of this stuff. He he did not like it that he tried to hit Frank Costello, who he liked and knew was a good boss, knew was about making money, was Lucky Luciano was about making money. So Lucky Luciano set him up. And he got a minor drug dealer to testify that he did a deal directly with Genovese. Now, most experts in, in this area of, of crime, even at the time, somebody like Ralph Salerno, if you remember that name, he was one of the early experts on, on organized crime in the United States that testified uh, at, at congressional hearings and everything. And and they would they refused to believe that Genovese really met this guy and did a direct heroin deal with him. But, but a jury convicted Genovese anyway and gave him a 15-year sentence. He gets sent to the federal prison in Atlanta. Now, being in Atlanta did not stop Vito Genovese, and he ordered the murder of other men while incarcerated. One was a capo regime in the old Luciano family named Anthony Carfano. Genovese was mad at Carfano, and once again, more like his personal kind of thing. He was mad because Carfano refused to attend the meeting in the Appalachian in protest to Genovese's attempted hit on Frank Costello. 
On September 25th, 1959, passers-by found Carfano and a female companion shot to death in his car parked on a residential street in Jackson Heights in the Queens. In 1962, another Genovese capo named Anthony Strollo or Tony Bender left his home one night and he was never heard from again. Now, this is what we call a Lupara Blanca or a white shotgun. When, now, in Sicily, whenever they disappear somebody, they call it Lupara Blanca. So Anthony Tony Bender Strollo was the victim of a Lupara Blanca hit. Genovese believes Strollo had conspired with Lucky Luciano to set him up with his narcotics conviction, and he probably did. The murderous reputation of Vito Genovese will eventually cause the mob's biggest problem, because in 1962, Genovese is in prison with one of his underlings, Joe Bellacci. And if you remember, he used Joe Bellacci to put another guy on the spot in a one of those personal vendetta killings. So Bellacci knows enough to bury Vito Genovese. Bellacci believed that Genovese gave him the kiss of death one day in the penitentiary and ordered his murder. Probably didn't, but we don't know for sure. Bellacci then kills an innocent man in what he thinks is self-defense. He thinks the guy is coming after him for Genovese. After a jury sentenced Bellacci to life in prison for that murder, and he found out that Genovese had put a contract out on his head because, you know, he needs he needs Bellacci to go away. He knows too much. Joe Bellacci would then become the single most important witness for the government in the history of the mob. So in summation, in this short and down and dirty history of Vito Genovese, he may be the man most responsible for bringing down the mob in the 70s and 80s after the convention at Appalachian and the attempted murder of Joe Velocci. And don't forget, I like to ride motorcycles, so look out for motorcycles. And if you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, I've got the hotline. If you're looking on the video, if not, go to uh, reformedgangsters.com and find Anthony Ruggiano, he's working with recovery. Thanks a lot, guys.